0: Invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Going to be uh, focusing predominantly on this part of the Bible, this portion of Scripture, for this evening's study. Luke chapter 19. So you might just put a bookmark there. <clears throat> but once again, it's good to see everyone that's able to be out out this evening. A lot of sickness going around, but with prayer and supplication, uh, hopefully soon uh, the our True number will be able to be back. Luke chapter 19. Um, This is an interesting story when you get to about halfway through Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. A lot of uh, headings for your Bibles probably say the triumphal entry. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. And it really is an interesting story. And it might seem somewhat. Out of place, maybe just random, maybe just completely arbitrary in our, in our minds. Maybe at first glance, that's what it looks like. But while it may seem that way, I think it holds rather important lessons for us. This has always been an interesting portion of Scripture, just for me alone, uh, because I do think it. Uh, I think it holds very important lessons, and and uh, from from lessons to the importance of fulfilled prophecy, all the way to the victory that God brings, and so. Uh, I want to look at that tonight, and if my voice will allow me to, I want to look at what's so triumphant about this. Because it is proclaimed as the triumphal entry. What is so triumphant about Jesus coming in to Jerusalem, marking this final week of Christ's life life leading up to the cross? And so I want to try to answer that tonight. And first of all, I want to start by looking at that importance, and, and the importance of the seemingly insignificant. As you look at the first few verses here, beginning in verse 28, it says, After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, is, there as you enter, you will find a colt tied on it, which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now, we're just kind of leading up to that moment where Jesus actually enters into Jerusalem, and we actually kind of looked at this uh, just a couple of weeks ago in our Bible class going through the Gospel of Mark. So it should be somewhat familiar in a lot of our uh, heads tonight, but th- there's a few, I would say, tiny details that we find throughout this portion of Scripture that I think do have a lot of uh, big impact. So one of the first things I want to look at is just the notion of prophecy being fulfilled, as we said just a moment ago, over in Matthew chapter 21, in a parallel account of this, Matthew chapter 21. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 21 in verse 4. Matthew 21 in verse 4, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so I I, I like this portion of Scripture because a lot of times when we see prophecies, uh, well, when we, n- not even just getting to the prophecies being fulfilled, but when we look at prophecies being given, especially in the Old Testament, a lot of times we look at that and think, oh boy. <laughs> I, we don't really want to think that much about that because I do think that it takes a little bit of tying and, and connecting throughout the scriptures. But I, I really do believe that there is so much encouragement and conviction that comes from paying attention to these prophecies that God gives long ago and just to see them being fulfilled. And ultimately, as you see on the screen, what we learn from prophecy being fulfilled is, is uh, just another example of God fulfilling his promises to his creation. And I don't think that there's ever, I don't ever think that's wasted space. I think a lot of times these are more encouraging and convicting than we give credit for. It's, it's very easy for this to become mundane because we know Jesus is the king. We know he's the Messiah. We know he's the son of God. We already know all of those things. But for these people in particular in the first century, all they had was the prophecy and they were waiting for the fulfillment. Can you imagine how exciting it would be to be in that moment thinking the king that we've been waiting on for so long to free us from bondage, to free us from oppression. He's finally coming. That would instill great excitement. Uh, I do think, however, that there were several in the first century that had become maybe somewhat like we have become today. It had been a long time since God made these promises. And so now, in our minds, it starts to become mundane, starts to become common, and it starts to just lose its impact. And that's one of the main things that I want to take from this. Even though it's been such a long time, look at how God fulfills his promises and that should build confidence and assurance in our relationships with him and and frankly whenever there is moments of doubt and moments of sorrow moments of despair where we just feel like we're not sure what's coming next and we feel like we were struggling in our confidence with God one of my main recommendations is go back and look at all of the times God has given a promise or prophecy And see how many times he's fulfilled those promises. And there's not one, not one, that has gone without being fulfilled, that has gone without being uh, delivered by our creator. And so I think there's a lot of encouragement from that. And, And just in that alone, even though it's a tiny detail, I don't just want to overlook that just because, well, we already know these things. Kind of like what we were talking about this morning. The Bible should never become mundane in our minds. Even in points like this, we need to be fascinated and we need to be impacted by that. But not only that, <clears throat> another tiny thing that I think is important to note here is that this isn't just some random, meaningless action that Christ is doing. Um, we, we hear his instruction that he gives to his disciples. You go and get this beast. You go and get this foal, this donkey that's never been sat on. And we think, all these details, what, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> It's just a bunch of random little details that we're just putting in. And I do think it goes back to that last point. But I think it speaks to a greater lesson that we need to learn here. And again, just building off of what we already said, that there's nothing in the Bible that's mundane. There's also nothing in the Bible that is pointless. And sometimes when we go through Scripture, too often when we come to passages in the Bible, we'll sometimes think that there was no point to that, there was no meaning to that. We could have just skipped right along. And frankly, we can say that about instructions that we're given. We can say that about maybe on-the-job training that we have to go through. We should never say that about the Bible. Here's a really good example. Just turn the page to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. (coughs) Luke chapter 20. Uh, In verse 37 is where we're going to pick up. This is an interesting part of the chapter because you have a group known as the Sadducees who don't believe that there's a resurrection, as it says in verse 27. (coughs) And they're trying to they're trying to basically trick Jesus uh, because obviously Jesus believes that there's a resurrection. He's teaching that there is. And so they give him this crazy wackadoodle a doodle situation about you know, someone who has many spouses. Okay, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And they're just trying to make it look foolish. Well, look at what Jesus says. <clears throat> Beginning in verse, uh, We'll begin in verse 34 just to get the context. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I think this is a really good example of how the Bible doesn't just put information in there to be pointless. When you look at Exodus chapters 3 and 4, and you see that account where Moses sees the burning bush and God starts speaking to him, you know, you could all, maybe someone might think, why, why is it that God. Why would God go through all of this pretense? Why is it that God has to just be extra in introducing himself, that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? What's the point? Well, there was a pretty big thing just in, just in a tiny phrase here. Notice that the, in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, the word resurrection never comes up, not once. Jesus uses it, however, to say this teaches about the resurrection because God is not the God of the dead but of the living, Right? And so he makes a really big point with a small detail, and I think that this should guide us in our study of the Bible. Again, we should never look at any portion of the Bible as mundane. We should never look at any a portion of the Bible as pointless. Sometimes people do this when you're having studies with someone, an unbeliever, and and maybe, <clears throat> maybe they have some uh, religious background, and as you're studying through Acts, you try to Make mention of how every time uh, someone is converted, what you find is that they're baptized into Christ. They're baptized so that their sins are washed away. They're cleansed in the blood of Jesus. And you try to make mention of that every single time you see it. But someone comes in and says, "Well, you know, that really is just. It just seems like circumstance. It just seems like maybe that's just something that they did." And and what happens is people try to downplay the situation. It's very clear. All throughout Acts, that baptism was a critical point of conversion. It is the point of conversion. But then, some. But but when you try to make that point, people will just say, "I, I don't really think it's that big of a deal. I think it, I think it comes to play after the fact, but not in the. I think that I think they're doing the same thing the Sadducees do. They're 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 looking at a portion of Scripture and essentially saying that that's really not needed. That's just an extra thing God put in there. God never does that. Man does. God does not." And maybe, the, maybe when you're talking to someone just about the pattern that you find throughout the New Testament and the need that we have to follow God's pattern, and they just keep saying, well, you know, I, I know that God gives us instructions, but can we really say there's one grand pattern? I don't think so. And what they're doing is downplaying. Christians do this as well. One of the main arguments I make whenever I preach on modesty is that God has not been silent about what nakedness is. Uh, And every single time I preach that lesson, every single time I continue to preach that lesson, I promise you one of the main points I'm going to make is God has spoken on what nakedness is. And all we have to do is just look throughout the Bible. And all we have to do is just be fair about this. And 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 when you look through maybe certain parts of Ezekiel, which is a lot of there's a lot of passages that that reveal what God uh, exposes as nakedness. But when you look through some of those passages, we say, oh, this is it, it, some of this is just really hard to understand, and, and some of it is, and some of it's kind of convoluted, maybe to a degree because it is you know uh, very prophetic language. But it's still very clear what God is saying when He says that He is going to expose it, someone's shame. And you look at that and you say. What, what it, why does God say that if it's not shameful to expose this on your body? And people say, "Well, that's they listen. That's the Old Testament. That okay. It's the same thing that the Sadducees are doing. They're trying to act like God is just putting extra stuff in there for no reason. There's a reason it's in there. And so we should never come to the Scriptures thinking that there's nothing for us here. There's always something for us. So there's big meaning in little details. But finally, with this point, it's interesting to note that their faith was displayed. In just retrieving the donkey. We're looking at the disciples now. And I would even say there's faith in the people that let their donkey go. Because that's theirs. But we'll get to that more in just a moment. But specifically focusing on those two disciples. That Jesus sends and they do go. And they retrieve the donkey. Look over at John chapter 12. Look at what it says in John chapter 12 and verse 16. John 12 and verse 16. It says, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And what's interesting about this is John makes clear they didn't know why they, they, they didn't understand what they were doing at the time. They didn't know why this had to be done. The point of the matter is they still did it. And isn't that something that disciples are supposed to be able to do today? Even though they may not understand, they're still going to be loyally obedient. That's faith. Could, you know, I just think about the people that had to give up, give up this donkey. that It was theirs and they say, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? The Lord has need of it. And they let it go. I really do wonder, and this is not an exact parallel, but what would happen if we heard that about my car. Somebody <laughs> comes and is grabbing a car from the garage or grabs, is trying to grab my car from the driveway. And the, I say, what are you doing? The Lord has need of it. Now, again, obviously, that would be a much different interaction today because I already know that the Lord has come. But I would like to think that if the Lord had need of my car, I would gladly relinquish control of it. I would like to think that if the Lord required my time, I would give it over to him. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if, if Jesus said, I want your energy, and I want your efforts, and I want all of them, and we just said, absolutely, let it be yours. That's faith. May it be said about me that I did what the Lord required, even when I didn't understand why. And so, yes, these are all tiny details, but they have a big impact, and they teach big lessons for us. Do I have faith just Just that small. Maybe we need to ponder on some of these things. And so there's some interesting uh, details that we find just at the beginning of this passage. But coming back to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I want to start focusing a little bit more on what makes this so triumphant as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19. Picking up in verse 36. It says... As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we'll stop there for just a moment. We'll pick up in verse 39 in just a second. But just from the very beginning, where's the triumph? What is so victorious about this? Because this was not the type nor the shadow. But the true Messiah entering his city. This is the king coming into his city and for a specific purpose to procure his victory, God's victory, and those that serve him. Uh, Coming back to Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 9, towards the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, in verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's speaking of a very mighty and strong reign and sovereignty. This is not just some son of David, someone who's going to sit on the throne of David. This is the one whom David spoke, my Lord said to my Lord. This is the one whom David even proclaimed as his Lord. And so... That's why this is so triumphant. That's why this is so victorious, because he's literally going to bring the victory that, we, that the people had been waiting for, and frankly, that they did not fully understand just yet that they needed. And so, that, I think that's pretty obvious, but, but moving on from that, they, the king is bringing victory, yet we know that Jesus came to Jerusalem to die. So how do we reconcile these things? In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus, I like uh, the New King James, I think it says, he set his face towards Jerusalem. I think the New American Standard says that he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And what does that mean? <clears throat> he knew what he was going to do. The cross was looming. And ever since Luke chapter 9, what has he been doing? He's been marching towards the cross. There's something beautiful about that. But go over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. <coughs> I will just say, I appreciate you binding with me with, the, with my voice. My voice does not hurt. Me, It may hurt you, but I appreciate you uh, going along with me. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. It says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So he's, the king is coming to bring victory, but he's coming to die. So how do, how do we reconcile this? <clears throat> and frankly, I think we do need to reconcile this. There's a reason that the disciples were confused about this. And I think it's the same reason that people are confused about it today. Because when people look at the cross, especially enemies of the cross, people that have no love for God nor his people... What tends to happen is they make fun and they mock it. How can you people look at such a bloody, broken, obvious defeat, this mess before you at the cross, and say, that's where I get my power from? Let's let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and look at how Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and there's so much more in the first 3 chapters here that I think would be helpful to look at but but especially in these verses here 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 18 <clears throat> for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever i will set aside where is the wise man where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting that God uses this exact method to bring salvation to his people? The very thing that he knew all along was going to bring mocking and 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 uh, slander and malice from people that's the very thing that he uses the the symbol of death is going to be the means that people have life the symbol of shame is going to be the very means that people's shame is taken away this broken defeat at the cross is going to bring about the means of God's victory now that's, that's what the point that Paul is making just in the first century in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But isn't it the same today? You can't have the victory unless you are first defeated by the cross. And I want to think more, a little bit more about that because this was a completely different scene than was depicted in the minds of, of most of the Israelites. There was a faithful remnant like Simeon, like Anna in the temple, like uh, uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias, Jesus' parents. I, I think that they had a better understanding, but still most of Israel, they just had a very poor understanding of what this kingdom was going to look like. They had a very poor understanding of what their king was going to look like. And I think the Pharisees, Uh, kind of uh, show this very, uh, very clearly in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 39, Luke chapter 19 again, in verse 39, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And so after the people are shouting, blessed is the king. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Obviously, they're they're being very clear about who they think Jesus is. Pharisees don't won't have it, and so they say rebuke these people. Jesus isn't going to rebuke these. Why? Because they're speaking the truth. Now, the Pharisees, I think, are are, are a very uh, very good illustration of how most of Israel looked at what their king was going to be like and what the kingdom that was coming that he was going to rule over was going to look like. The and just as we were talking about a moment ago, isn't this still true of our culture today? The Pharisees and the rest of Israel, they wanted a king that was going to complete, make a bloody mess of the Roman Empire. And they were going to bring the Jews as the top dogs across the entire world. That's the kingdom they wanted. They did not want the humble part of Zechariah chapter 9. They did not want the meek and gentle king. They wouldn't have that, and so that's why they rejected him. I think there's a very close tie in to our culture today because it's, it's almost the opposite. Instead of wanting um, <clears throat> this, this king that is going to bring judgment, today the culture wants a, a, a man that's not meek and gentle because what people tend to think about meek today is just you know he's a t- basically a sissy. That's not what meek means. It's, it's strength subdued. And so they just have a misunderstanding of what that means. But what they really want is is loving Jesus, not King Jesus. They want a Jesus that's going to be only gentle with them and never rebuke. They want a king that's only going to say, Oh, I just want to shower you with blessings. They don't want a king that says, I want to give you my instructions. I want to give you my word, my decree to follow. For all time... People have been rejecting God's idea of what a king's supposed to be. It is our jobs to look at what the Bible presents. Jesus as Lord and King and Savior. And take all of that, not just bits and pieces that we want. Just like the Pharisees tried to do and a lot of Israel tried to do. I wonder, am I guilty of this? Following a king of my own making. Following a king who says, come to church when you want or when you feel like it. Following a king who says, Love your brother when it's easy. Not when it's hard. Don't worry about that. I understand that. Or are we following a king who says, Read your Bible when it suits you. What did we just talk about this morning? The king says, You need to give all your attention to that. And so I wonder, again, Am I bowing to King Jesus? Or am I bowing to a, a Jesus of my own making? And I will just say... We either bow to Jesus now as a servant and disciple or we will bow in the end as his enemy who is going to receive the worst judgment. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth. Not one person will be exempt. And so just understand, at some point you have to submit it better be at the cross, not on the final day. At some point, you're going to have to bow. It better be at the cross, not in the judgment. At some point, you're going to have to admit defeat. and Hopefully, it's at the cross, not at the judgment. And so we get to pick what day we are going to submit and accept that defeat. So that way we can have share in Christ's victory instead of reaping the reward of his enemies. Well, finally, <clears throat> when you get to the end of this chapter... There is much to be said about the victory and the triumphant nature of, of this whole scene. It's beautiful. This is one of the most beautiful points of Jesus' ministry because finally people are treating him the way that He deserves. They're, they're, they're putting out their clothes and they're putting out their robes so that he doesn't just sit on the donkey bear so that he does, so that his donkey doesn't just walk on the road, the dust of the road. This is beautiful. This kind of devotion and awe and admiration, it obviously does not stay this way. And even when you get to verse 41, look at Jesus' emotions here. Consider his emotions. It says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. There are two places in the Bible that show Jesus weeping or crying. You see it once here in verse 41 of Luke chapter 19, and then you also see it in John chapter 11, verse 35. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. When the Bible says that the Creator wept, we need to reflect on that. I sometimes wonder if I share the emotional uh, array that Jesus showed, And and going along with that, I wonder, do I weep at the same thing that Christ weeps at? Would I laugh at the same thing that Christ laughs at? Am I angry with the same things that he would be righteously indignant towards? I think that's something that we need to think of just, just, just from the outset. But, but when you think about this, it turns from a beautiful moment to a moment where Jesus has to weep. What turned this joyous occasion into a somber moment? What makes God mourn? And there's a few things that I think we should think about as we <clears throat> end the lesson tonight. One of the main things that I think makes God mourn is when his people don't live up to his standard. What was Jerusalem? The city of peace. Had it been acting that way? In fact, go over to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 in verse uh, 34. Luke 13 verse 34. It says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when, he say, when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so now in Luke chapter 19, we're at that moment. And so you might think some are looking at this and, and thinking, uh-oh, I remember what he said the last time. But one of the things that we need to understand is that when we, likewise, do not live up to his standard, the scriptures, the Bible, this is something that makes God sorrowful. I just don't think that hits us the way it should today. We read several times throughout the Bible, God became angry. God became upset with his creation. We look at that in Genesis chapter 6 with the flood. Does that hit us? That I can displease, that I can make the Lord sorrowful or angry or upset. I hope that does hit us. And I hope that does affect us. Instead of these people being the city of peace, They did not live up to their name. It was the city who killed the prophets. Can we be described in similar ways? Instead of the church, instead of the temple of God, have we distorted that in some way? You look at Jerusalem, you look at the the Jews at this time. In John chapter 1 and verse 11, it says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. The king was coming into his city. The king came to his people. And even though you have this, this scene that is beautiful, It's very limited because by the end of this week, what's happening? A whole crowd of people are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It was a very short-lived moment and a very rare moment in the ministry of Christ. He came to his own, but they did not receive him. They did not recognize him as who he was, the embodiment of the law and the prophets. They did not recognize him as the son of God. They did not recognize him as this Messiah that they had been waiting for. Ultimately, because as we were talking about earlier, they did not want this king, God's king. And so would we recognize Jesus if we saw him today? If we were in the same circumstance, would we look at Jesus and think, he embodies the law. He's exactly what God would have us to be. Or finally, thinking about the judgment <clears throat> that is not supposed to be coming to God's people. Judgment, God's judgment is supposed to only be designated for those that are his enemies. And what a shame it brings to him when his judgment is finally coming down to who were sup- the people who are supposed to be his the people who are supposed to be holy as he is holy. This is something that makes God sorrow, not just because we didn't live up to the standard we were supposed to, but because he does not want judgment to fall on us. He wants us to be in a right relationship with him. He wants us to be in heaven with him. And it's all the more tragic because these people, just like us today, we had warnings. In Luke chapter 13, as we just read, he says, I, I, I just wish that you would hear me. I wish that you would come to me as chicks to, a, to, to their mother hen. I wish that you would just listen to that way. You could heed the warning and, and, and be saved from the judgment to come, but they won't. And you look at these people and say, what a, what a stubborn, obstinate people. How many of us are just as stubborn and obstinate? How many of us see the, the, the law that God has given to us, this law of liberty, how many of us see the instruction that he has given to us and, and unfortunately time and time again prove that it's not enough, at least not in this moment, and then not this moment, and then not another moment? I don't want to look at these stories that, that we find throughout the Bible and think, this has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with me. Am I like the Jews of that day who <coughs> listened to, To warning after warning after warning, not just from some random crazy person, but from God. And every single time they went to worship in the synagogues, they heard the law and they read through it and they cited it themselves and they prayed to God. How many times did people do that, ultimately rejecting his instruction and rejecting Jesus? Is it the same today? Are we coming to worship Every Sunday, every Wednesday, are we coming to the Bible studies and maybe even saying a thing or two, but ultimately we are not living like Christ. Can I be in a right relationship with God if I am not following after him in his footsteps as a disciple? If you're a Christian and you have not been following his footsteps, maybe you've walked astray, you can make things right tonight. Don't think that you can trick God. We need to come to him, make confession, make make repentance. Do away with the things that he said we cannot have anything to do with. So that way we can be in a right relationship with him. We have an advocate in heaven. If you are not yet a Christian, you just have to obey his instruction. Are you willing to hear everything he has to say? Do away with everything that he says you can't be a part of. Make a confession based on that belief. Be faithful in his instructions and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life. You can have salvation this very night. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ, by any means, please come forward as we stand.